All right, Aiden, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? I can. All right. Uh, let's rock and roll. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first episode of uh, the Queasy Man podcast. So uh, my name is Aiden Leonard. Uh, and some of you are wondering why uh, Queasy Man. I've had that nickname ever since I was a, a kid. Uh, it's actually a funny story. Um, when I was about eight years old, I was the manager of the basketball team and uh, was headed to a game. And I was sitting in the back with all the varsity players and uh, they were they were chewing snuff. And uh, at eight years old, I was peer pressured and uh, I put a chew of snuff in and uh, I got sick. So they said I got queasy. Well, that nickname was given to me by a, a basketball player all the way back then. <laughs> and uh, that nickname has stuck with me. But uh it's a little bit of a backstory, but uh, today my first guest is uh, former district attorney Bill Higgins. So, Bill, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Hey. I'm super excited. Hey, thanks for having me, Aiden. Uh, so, Bill, uh, you know, before we get into things, so, uh, you know, give us a little intro. Uh, you know, some of the people might not know exactly where you're from and, and who you are, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, uh, as you indicated, I'm the former district attorney of Bedford County. I don't practice law anymore, but um, I served as the district attorney in Bedford County for 14 years, uh, served as an assistant for three years before that. Uh, originally came to Bedford County in 2000, got a job as an assistant DA, uh, ran for office in 2003, uh, which I always, I, I kind of brag a little bit about that because when I moved to Bedford County in 2000, I didn't know a single person. And by 2003, I knew enough people uh, to successfully run for and get elected district attorney. So uh, I was elected DA in uh, 2003, sworn in in 2004, uh, was reelected uh, four times. And um, in the middle of my fourth term, uh, my world kind of blew up. I uh, made some serious mistakes. I'm sure it's no secret to anybody uh, that knows who I am. Feel free to Google me. Uh, half of what you read will be true. Half, maybe not. Um, but, you know, bottom line is I made some serious mistakes, uh, screwed up my career, kind of threw it all away uh, by my own stupidity and uh, spent the last two years trying to rebuild my life, rebuild things with my I do everything I can to be the best person I can be. And I have good days, bad days uh, like anybody else. But, um, you know, I could go on for hours and hours about the journey of my life, the ups, the downs, the, the struggles. Uh, um, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions you have, but yeah, that's kind of the cliff notes version of, uh, my career as a prosecutor. Like I said, I don't practice law anymore. I know there's some specific cases you want to ask me about, and I'll be more than happy to, to share some information and some insight into those things, but, or really anything you want to talk about. My, my goal in life now is to help people. You know, I've, I've been, uh, on the top of the mountain. I've been at the bottom of the mountain and, uh, I know what it's like to be on top. I know what it's like to be at the bottom. And any chance I get an opportunity to share with people just how to overcome adversity, how to get through those darkest days. You know, I've seen people, I hate to even say this, but I've seen people who have killed themselves over less than I've been through. And I don't want anybody to ever be in that dark spot. So what I try to do is I have a podcast of my own, the Never Quit Podcast. I hope you'll give me an opportunity for a cheap plug there. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, I do everything I can to help people, to motivate people, and to tell people, listen, uh, no matter how bad things are, you know, you're going to get through this. You know, what I like to talk about is to people is, you know, everybody is either uh, in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or going to go into a crisis. And if you're not one of those people, 
you know, I'm probably not the podcast you should listen to, or I'm not the kind of guy that could give you advice. My, my advice is for people that, uh, you know, are, are going to suffer some adversity, have suffered from adversity or suffering adversity and how they get through it. No, well, <laughs> no, what well, well said, uh, you know, life is full of ups and downs. Uh, you know, everybody falls down. And, and, and as we talked a little bit before we started this, you know, we won't go into all that, but, you know, like I said, it's a, uh, it's a lot easier for the guy to wake up and go to work when he's got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, everything's going good, you know, than the guy that, you know, is going to work where, you know, he's barely making ends meet ends. You, you know, he's got, you know, this, that, and the other things. So you never really know what a person's going through. And I've always believed in my life through personal adversities, it's not how many times you fall down. It's how you can get back up. And, uh, you know, that, that's true, you know, you know, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard it said that, you know, the people you see on Instagram and Facebook that look like they have the best life, uh, they really just have better photographers, better photography skills. You know, um, people, everybody is, is struggling with something. Uh, some people hide it better than others. Some people aren't willing to confront it, but everybody's struggling with something. And, you know, I have found that, um, people, People, when you're suffering through adversity, people will open up to you, you know, and tell you, you know, about the struggles they've had in their life. And uh, some of the people that have come to me and talked to me about the difficulties that they had and what they overcame, it inspired me. And I've even said to those people, you know, you should share those stories more. People, a lot of people don't like to, but I decided that I'm going to share my struggles with people this, so that I can help somebody. And if I, if I just help one people in this world, I know it sounds cliche, but if I just help one person in this world, you know, then, then everything I've, I've put into this is, is a success. Absolutely. Well, you're helping me, uh, you know, so. Well, that's um, awesome. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, like I said, I, I've always wanted to do this. Um, I, you know, I, I work a full-time job. Um, I'm off this week uh, due to, you know, uh, some, uh, some personal time off, uh, you, you know. Uh, you know, I also want to give a plug uh, to my grandfather. He just uh, passed away. Uh, Joseph Morrow, um, he was, uh, took me in at, at three months old. Um, I should have said this at the beginning, I forgot, and raised me, took me to, you know, football practice, basketball practice, whatever I wanted, uh, gave me a life that my parents uh, could not give. Uh, so, you know, him being a grandfather and my grandmother, they stepped up to the plate and gave me the best life that I could imagine. You know, he recently passed away, and one of the things he always taught me was to, Go for your go for it all. If you believe in something and you want to do something, go do it. You know, the only thing that's stopping you, he used to say, is fear and air. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna start my podcast and, and here we are. But I want to awesome, man. Put, I wanted to you're making him proud. Place. I'm so, I'm sorry to hear your loss there, but I'm sure he's uh proud that you're using that advice to do something with it and, and move uh move the ball forward. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. He was uh, a, a when you were DA, he was a big fan. So as we get into this, so like you said, that was actually quite interesting. Um, so how, I, I'm sure you get to the time, but how did you end up in Bedford County? You know, how, what, what happened? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. You know what? Uh, I, I'm always happy to share that story as well. Um, you know, because that, that actually is another one of those times that I was on the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain at the same time. I, uh, so I, I grew up in the city. Uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer. At a very young age, I, I knew I wanted to be a prosecutor. Um, I uh, worked really hard to that goal. Um, went to law school, graduated from law school. Um, but in my third year of law school, uh, I, I did something really stupid. I was at a football game, an Eagles game, Eagles versus the Packers. Uh, too much to drink, acting stupid. 
got in a fight um, and uh, ended up getting charged with simple assault. Got put on probation, had to go through all that. And my dream of being a, a Philadelphia prosecutor, a prosecutor in the Philadelphia DA's office was pretty much gone in an instant. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm a big believer, work hard, you know, put, put your past in your past, put your dreams, you know, in the forefront, do everything you can to move forward. So I, I, I didn't really give up on the dream, but I knew it was going to be tough. So when I graduated from law school, I started applying to, uh, you know, different DA's offices, even applied to some public defender's offices because I thought if I could get a job as a public defender, get some experience, you know, get my foot in the door, maybe be a prosecutor someday. Um, I, uh, I striking out and I was in Philadelphia. So I applied in all the surrounding counties, Montgomery County, Bucks County. And, you know, I always I always believe and I'll tell this to anybody. The only thing that limits you to achieving your dream your goal is the is the limits that you set. You know, you you are setting the limits. So I was a, I was a licensed lawyer in Pennsylvania. There's 67 counties in Pennsylvania. That meant that I had 67 opportunities to hear the answer no. And if that doesn't work out, maybe I'll get a law license in another state and try. But I was going to hear 67 no's before I accepted the fact that I couldn't be a prosecutor. Um, the, the only I did it really the only logical way alphabetically. Right. Started applying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I think I did pretty damn good because I only got to the B's and I got a job. Right. So I got a yeah, job yeah, in yeah. Bedford as an assistant district attorney. Dwight Deal gave me a job. Um, uh, he was the district attorney at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tell him I've told him as recently as last year how grateful I was for that opportunity, you know, because I, it, somebody gave me a chance to, uh, you know, to be a prosecutor when you know, the chips were down. So I, uh, you know, I got that job here in Bedford, moved to Bedford. And like I said, didn't know a soul, uh, but I worked pretty hard uh, over the next three years just to be the best prosecutor I could be. I built a pretty good reputation as tough on crime. And then, you know, the rest I've already touched on. I was elected DA in 2003. But yeah, that's what brought me to Bedford was, was the job. And the reason I ended up looking at Bedford is just because alphabetically it was the first one that I got offered an opportunity and I took it. Uh, I took the job. In fact, I, uh, I I wasn't even sure when I first got the call if I was going to Bre- Bedford County or Bradford County. I had to look uh, look again. Bradford County is in the northeast part of the state, up by New York. But, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's that's inter- that's interesting. I I didn't know that. Yeah, that's yeah. No, I'm happy to share that story. So, you become an assistant district attorney. Um, you know, I, I was probably really young then. Um, you know. So not not calling you old or nothing. No, that's who okay. You, it was 2000, did, 2000. Yeah. Who did you uh, who did you run against uh, the first time to become DA? Uh, you know what, uh, Dwight Dwight Deal. Uh, it was my boss. So the guy, uh, the guy that gave you the job, because because I've researched that a little bit and yeah. and I knew that answer, but uh, but I wanted you to you to say it for the viewers. So I wanted to ask, you know, what what was that like? What was that like to make that decision to the guy that gave me the job? Now I'm going after his job. Yeah, you, you it know, was. What, what was that like? It, it was an uncomfortable uh, decision. It was. Um, it, there was a lot going on uh, with the, the 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 job at the time. The state of the job. I'll tell you, in Pennsylvania, at that time, m- more than half of the district attorneys in the state were what were considered part time. So they they had private practices. And they also really? were the district attorney. And there was a lot of there was a lot of discussion at the time that every district attorney in the state should be full time. And, um, you know, I'm not, you know, taking uh, it's not to slight Dwight Deal in any way. He was a good guy, but he, he was a part time district attorney he had a full time private practice or a 
a private practice, I guess, part-time. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of just had a d- different uh, view on, <clears throat> on that issue. Um, I thought that the district attorney should be somebody that's in the office full-time. Um, there were some other issues that, that, you know, we had conversations and I never really, and I'm not sure if Dwight would look at it this way or not, but I never really felt that I was being disloyal because there were enough conversation had between the two of us leading up to that decision that, you know, I, uh, I just felt that it was in the best interest of, for me, for the office and, you know, uh, for the next step in my career. But it, yeah, it was always, that always did sit in the back of my mind saying, you know, a guy gave me an opportunity and here I am running against him. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a very difficult decision to make one that I had to think about, talk to my wife about, pray about, uh, and, uh, ultimately I made that decision and, um, you know, but there was a lot more to it than just, Hey, I, you know, I want the top job. I'm, you know, was it more of a, wasn't so much of a power grab as it was just looking at the landscape and seeing this was the right thing for most people involved. Yeah. 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 No, 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 for sure. And, and, I, and I'm sure, you know, now, now, nowadays you and Dwight, uh, if you don't mind me asking, do you guys still have a relationship to this day? You, you know what, when I went through my adversity, he was one of the first persons to reach out to me uh, and, and give me some encouragement, tell me, and we hadn't really talked much leading up to that. I mean, you know, cordial professional relationship, but when I went through my difficulty in 2018, yeah. he was uh, one of the first persons to reach out to me and say, hey, man, uh, I know you're going through a lot. You just, you know, I'm in your corner. You know, if you need anything, reach out to me. And then when he ran for judge uh, in 2020, I guess yeah. it was or 2019, 2019, um, he had the full support of, of, of me, my family. Um, and I, I did everything I could to, to help him in that endeavor to the extent that I still had any influence. Um, but. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think we've come full circle. I think we have an understanding of, of each other. And, um, you know, I uh, I have nothing but respect for him. And, and you know, like I said, he reached out to me uh, on my darkest day. And it really meant a lot because he was a guy that could easily say, you know, hey, what goes around comes around. You know, you got what you deserve, something like that. Yeah. You know, it, showed, it told me a lot about his character and the type of man that he is to reach out to me and that, at that time. I mean, you have three choices in that situation. One, uh, gloat. One, do nothing. Two, do nothing. Or three, reach out and show support. And the people of real character reach out and show support. And that's what he did. So uh, I have nothing but respect for the man. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. No, 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 for sure. So, so you become, you know, you, you run for DA, um, you know, you, you, when you ran, did you, obviously you would have had to believe that you had a chance of winning or else you wouldn't have done it. Um, so you run, you get elected, you know, tell me, tell me, tell us what that feels like. You're, you're not from the County. Uh, I don't know how old you were at the time. Maybe you could include that. You know, how, how did that feel? Uh, yeah, I was 29 years old at the time I was elected. I was the youngest DA in the state. So that was a, a point of pride for me. Um, you know, uh, it, it was it was an opportunity. I'd, I'd been interested in politics since as long as I can remember. I had followed political campaigns for as long as I can remember. Uh, I, I, I kind of whether mentally or actually physically always took notes on campaigns, what I liked, uh, people I admired. And I was able to actually utilize all of those things that I used that I've observed for 29 years to actually, you know, run for office myself. It was it was pretty amazing. Um, 
in fact, it's, you know, I have a couple ideas for, for uh, books and presentations in mind that I want to do someday. And one of them is on running for office, just little, little things that I think you can do to make a difference when you're running for office to, to be successful. And I was able to implement all those things. And, uh, it really, it really, um, it felt good. You know, it felt good. I really, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about being uh, an elected official was running for office, going out, talking to people, um, winning people over. And, and, you know, now I'm, I'm, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I'm in a sales career now. And that's what I do now is I win people over. I go, I talk to them about uh, what, you know, the product I'm selling them. I have to win them over. They first have to like me before they can even look at my product. And they look at the product. They got to like the product. And then I can convince them to trust me that we're going to do a good job for them. <clears throat> and that's what I had to do as, you know, uh, a, can a candidate for office, get out, talk to people, give them my, um, uh, my, my best pitch, you know, this is who I am and win them over. And I, I always really felt good about the people that they at first either said they, they weren't going to vote for me or weren't sure if they're going to vote for me. And by the time I left their house, they, they, I won them over, you know, those are the ones that felt the best. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And, uh, the, the one thing a lot of people forget though, when they run for office is when you win, <clears throat> now you got to do the job. And, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> I, 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 very few people, even my worst enemies will tell you, I did a bad job as DA. They'll tell you I screwed up. They'll tell you I was, you know, um, uh, they may tell you uh, that I, that I was a jerk sometimes, whatever, but very few people will tell you I wasn't a damn good prosecutor because I was. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, I think, you know, so and we're going to we're going to get into that. Um, so you're you're the new D.A. You know, of course, you know, anytime there's a new administration uh, or management, you know, have it, you know, there's obviously change and, and you brought a lot of changes. Um, <clears throat> is there is there anything that stood out when you became the D.A. that that shocked you? Is there anything that people don't really know? Like what what is what did you do on a day to day? you know, normal, normal work. Is the, um, yeah, yeah. You know what? I remember when, when I was the, yeah, I'd always talk to student groups of, you know, on career days and stuff like that. And the very first thing I tell them is if you want to know what a typical day as a DA is, um, I'm going to tell you right now, there's no such thing. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's the, and there's a lot of jobs in the world like this. So it, it's not unique to being a prosecutor, but, um, you know, you have your day well planned out and you get to the office. And as soon as you get there, uh, you know, uh, things go to hell and, and something happened that you got to deal with right away and your well laid plans for the day fall apart. I always, uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Mike Tyson. He says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Right. And th right. Th that's what being a DA is, is, you know, you got your plan, but when you get to the office, you're going to get punched in the face, be ready to deal with it. Uh, you know, whatever the criminal element doesn't really work systematically uh, that, you know, when something's going to happen when it's not. So, you could wake up in the middle of the night, find out somebody was murdered and you got to deal with that. Um, but one one case, just kind of real quick, not to tell you a bunch of war stories, but one yeah, thing that, that, right. one thing that I always and I was able to do this very, very early on in my uh, tenure as D.A. You know, you can if, if, if you take 10 D.A.s or 100 D.A.s and they 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 handle, you know, a DUI case. 99 of them are going to kind of handle that the same way you get, um, you know, this is the first offense DUI. This is the standard um, punishment. You're going to offer that to the guy. He's going to accept it. He's going to plead guilty, whatever, you know, so the vast majority of the time it's hard to, I shouldn't say the vast majority of the time, but a lot of the time it's hard to see where you're making a difference, but very early on, 
uh, when I was DA, I was able to make a decision on something that I knew I made a difference. And I'll tell you what it was. There was a, there was a young girl who had been um, molested by her uh, mother's boyfriend. And what happened was this, this mother brought home her new boyfriend uh, and she went out or something like that. And her mother was there. So the child's grandmother was there downstairs. The little girl was upstairs in her bedroom and this new boyfriend, creepy guy goes up the steps, goes into her bedroom. The grandmother got a weird feeling about it. So she went up and she walked into the bedroom and this guy's on top of this little girl. And she, she screams, he jumps up, runs out of the room. He's like, he's like kissing her neck. She's six years old. I mean, it's disgusting. So before I was DA, they brought that little girl in to testify and she clammed up. She couldn't testify. So they withdrew the charges against her, against the guy, withdrew the charges. Right after I was elected DA, I talked to the trooper involved in the case and I asked him what happened. And he told me, he said, the little girl couldn't testify. And I remember I said, well, okay, so she can't testify. What did the grandmother see? Grandmother, I got the grandmother, brought her in my office. She said, I went up the steps. I walked in the room. This this guy was on top of my six-year-old granddaughter, kissing her on the neck, you know, on a bed. I said, you know, he said she was fully clothed. He was fully clothed. But I don't think he would have been like that way much longer if I didn't walk in the room. So I said, well, you observed a crime. What you observed is a criminal offense. And this girl's six years old. Consent doesn't matter. Now, if we were talking about an adult, the adult would have to say, yeah, I didn't want to kiss me, right? A six-year-old doesn't have to say that. So I said, well, you know, I don't really think I need this little girl to testify. I said, if she can't testify, she can't testify. You testify to what you saw. We'll put it in front of a jury. You, I witnessed the crime and the consent of the person it was committed against doesn't matter. We're going to rearrest this guy. Rearrested him. His defense lawyer said, you know, I want to cross-examine that little girl. I, was, I said, about what? You know, we, she says, what if she says she begged him to do it? Wouldn't make a difference. Still a crime. So I said, we're going to try the case. Arrested the guy, retried the case, or tried the case. The first time it was withdrawn at the preliminary hearing. Um, convicted him. And fortunately, because, you know, the crime only went so far, it was only a first-degree misdemeanor. Uh, fortunately, the girl didn't have to suffer any more than that. But I got the maximum penalty, two and a half to five years. And, I, and when his parole was up in two and a half years, I went, I wrote a letter to the parole board. They maxed him out. He served the full five years in prison. Point being of this is, if I wasn't the DA, charges may have never been filed in that case. And it made me feel good that I made a difference. This guy got five years in prison, very well deserved. And I was able to get justice for that little girl, even though she couldn't. For testify. sure. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Yeah. I, you hate hearing stuff like that. I, I don't know what runs through people's minds. So, you know, <clears throat> but you're the DA. And, and this is one of the cases I want to get into. You're, you're the district attorney. Um, so, you know, also you, um, you know, I, I can remember being in school, you know, you had a, uh, a very strong presence, you know, you no nonsense for, for drug dealers. You know, I, I can always remember, you know, every three to six months, uh, you know, even in the Bedford Gazette, I, re- I read the newspaper a lot back then, you know, you would do, um, not you, but um, they would have, you know, drug raids. So, so what was that like, you know, yeah. when, when you started, you know, go, going in? Because I, I think before there, there wasn't as many. I think you had a lot of drug raids on, uh, under your belt. And, and there haven't been many no, since. No, 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 that's actually something that, <laughs> but, that I've noticed, you, you, you know, because, you, you yeah. know, uh, I, I hate to say this, um, but, you know, everybody knows somebody. And, you know, there was a lot of people that, you know, you, you talk to and it's like, man, you know, it's been a, it's been a little while. They're, they'll be kicking the doors in here before long. It's been three or four months. And, you know, next thing you know, boom, you know, the door kicks in, which funny story. Um, 
I won't mention the guy's name, uh, but, uh, you know, my, one of my basketball coaches was a uh, drug task force. You know, he was uh, kind of, I believe, the a high-ranking leader. And, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I know yeah. exactly and, who you're uh, talking he used about. He to tell us stories all the time. And uh, I, I remember I, I wanted to job shadow him. And we're not, I'm not trying to get off off the road here. And I wanted to job shadow him. He's like, yeah, you can come job shadow me. And this was actually kind of funny. So he takes me to the police barracks and I sit there all day and I'm like, wait, you don't, you don't do this. Like, look, this isn't what you do. Like, I, I want to go see what you do. And he's like, nah, you know, I can't do that. You know, blah, blah, blah. But it just happened, so happened to be that day that uh, they were going and kicking doors in. And I got, you know, come back to the police uh-huh. barracks. I got to see a press conference on it. Was, it was pretty cool, but you know, uh, he has told me many stories. So, Getting back on on track, uh, you know, I, I what was what was that like for you? You know, it was it was uh, it was interesting um, because there's another side to all that. You know, you put that out there, and the, one of the reasons you do that is to send a message to the public that we're not going to tolerate this type of behavior. We're doing something about it. We're arresting people. We're prosecuting them. But you know, every one of those uh, people that you arrested, there's more. There's more to the story. A lot of them were addicts that were selling to fund their habit. A lot of them were drug dealers that were in a business because that was the business that they did. And when you make those arrests, you don't differentiate. You know, you, these people committed this crime. This is what they're charged with. A lot of those people um, have turned their lives around. And, um, you know, have, have been able to, uh, piece their life back together, get, get on the right path. And, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes disheartening that they had to have their face flashed on the front page of the paper. So I, it is one of the things that, yeah, it's part of the job is part of what we do, but every once in a while in the back of my mind, I think, man, you know, there, there was a, there was a benefit to that, but those people actually suffered a little bit, maybe more than they should have, um, for, for future references, because in this day and age, if there's something that's in the newspaper, it's online forever. forever. And, um, you know, it's not like a long time ago where, you know, if you'd made a mistake t- 20, 30 years down the road, nobody could even find it. Now it's always going to be there. So um, there's a couple lessons to be learned there. One is, you know, be mindful of the fact that there's a backstory for each of these people. And also be mindful of the fact that when you screw up, it's it's going to be information that's ex- accessible forever. Um, you know, most people are law abiding citizens and go their whole life without having to deal with something like that. But, um, I speak from experience when you make mistakes, it's always going to be out there and people are always gonna be able to access that information. So, yeah, you know, we, we enjoyed doing those things. Uh, there was a lot of work that went into it. Um, but the main thing was just to let people know, because the one difficult thing about drug investigations is this, we had a drug tip line and people would call that tip line and they'd say, Oh, you know, my neighbor's selling drugs, you know, whatever, leave the information. Well, we don't call those people back and tell them, okay, this is what we're doing. We're going to watch that house. We're going to uh, watch the people going in and out of there. We're going to get phone records. We're going to get search warrants. You know, no, we, the investigation has to be confidential, right? So you're doing all that in a confidential way. And sometimes the people are saying, hey, I reported this information and nobody ever did anything with it. That was one of the most frustrating things I'd hear because you couldn't tell the people what you were doing with it. So those, those drug raids were a way to show, show people, hey, listen, you reported information and this is what we did with it. And, you know, I'd have people call me say, yeah, you know, I called you about six months ago about that guy. I was glad to see you finally arrested <laughs> him. Yeah, well, during that six months, we were building the case against him because you got to remember, you know, what, what the average person thinks is a crime or, or is enough to arrest somebody for a crime isn't. You know, you don't just say, oh, I saw a lot of cars at that person's house on Saturday night. I think they're a drug dealer. Oh, let's go kick in their door and arrest them. 
you know, it, they might've been having a, a graduation party. You know what I mean? Like who knows, you know, th- there could be an innocent explanation for what people allege is criminal activity. But the other side of it is a lot of times where there's smoke, there's fire. So if people are reporting this thing over and over again, we're going to follow up and look into it. No, no, no. But you know, for sure. Um, and, and I didn't mean that. And, yeah. and, and like I said, you know, me, you know, I, I have a past, I've changed my life around in that. And I just thought, you know, anybody that's going to be listening to this, I don't want them to think that I'm putting anybody that's ever been arrested for drugs or anything down. It was just, you know, oh, just no. something that, that I wanted to, you know, talk about. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, uh, one thing that's funny is who, who would come up with the names? You know, the uh, Operation Stocking Stuffer is one that, <laughs> and we can laugh about it. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, as a teenager, I was like, hmm, I wonder where they, they're so close, you know, the names. Just, you know, it's kind of funny to me. It might not be funny to the next person, but. Oh, no, 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 no. Sometimes, uh, you know, it, it, it would be well, an investigation would sort of start when the last one ended. So, you know, th- it's like the branches of a tree. You get one person and then another person, you know, this is where this grew out. And you kind of go up the tree or down down, down the, the, the path there to who's connected to who. So usually when we had a drug raid, they were all somewhat connected in a way. You know, maybe maybe even they didn't all know each other, but they knew common people that were, you know, um, acting as informants and getting that information to us to to file charges in those cases but as far as the names for them you know it was just kind of uh sitting around the office saying hey we're gonna make this arrest probably around the springtime we'll just call this you know operation uh so, yeah i forget some of them i we summer's catch was one of them yeah we were gonna arrest some people in june or july and we you know said well we'll get this thing wrapped up by about july so we'll call it operation summer's catch everybody in the office sort of uh you know contributed kicked some ideas around and it was also a way to draw attention to it to let the public know hey this is you know this is what we're doing and to remind people that it also helped remind people of the last one so like we have operation summer's catch the last one we had like operation coal for christmas so they remember just six months ago we were arresting people in december you know what i mean so it was it was a way to uh to kind of draw interest to the um um you know what was going on uh, to get the attention of the public and you know and listen i'm not going to kid you we got some criticism over that people thought sometimes that we were making too light of things that was never the yeah. case um it was sort of a way to just kind of put a name on and if you, you know actually the FBI does it all the time sure, yeah. um you know they they uh, yeah yeah i mean it's not it's not something that's unheard of but we did you know kind of play it up as much as we could but it was more just to make the public aware of what was going on and it really you know listen this is ugly work you know it's 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 it's, it's you see the worst of the worst in people and it was a way to kind of bring some you know, lightheartedness to a difficult job at times. No, for sure. So you're, you're the DA and, uh, next thing you know, uh, we're going to get into this, uh, Holly Nodenstein case. And, and before we do, and, 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 you know, what, whatever road we go down, I might ask questions, you know, I'm an energetic person. Yeah, please. You are too. Um, you know, but I just want to say that, you know, uh, so sorry for the victims of any cases, the murder cases that we talk about, you know, my sincere, you know, condolences still go out to the family to this day. Uh, they're horrible crimes committed by, you know, people. And it's just it's tragic. So I wanted to, to put that in there. And I know you're not a lawyer anymore, so we're not, you know, I just wanted to, to reexamine that as we we get into this case. So um, so I believe the case starts out. Um, you know, it, it started out as a missing person, cor- correct? And uh, my, my first thing I want to ask you is, so where were you at when you found out 
there was a missing person case or however the case started out in Bedford County. Like, can you tell us what you were doing at those exact moments and what you thought? Yeah. You know what? I was, I was assistant DA at the time. She went missing in uh, 2001. Okay. Yeah. 2001. So I was assistant DA. Um, I got a call at home at night uh, from the police. uh, And then the next morning I talked to Dwight uh, deal the DA. We talked about it, uh, met with the police, you know, kind of got a lay of what was going on. Uh, layout of what was going on. It, yes, it was a missing person case, but um, unfortunately, we uh, had had a suspect immediately and had pretty confident uh, idea that that this was a murder case, you know. But you know, when you don't have a body and you don't have a smoking gun, so to speak, in terms of evidence against the suspect, you know, those things are kept under wraps. But I would say within a day we knew that we had uh, or with, with strong certainty that we had a, a, a homicide and a suspect. Okay. And, but to make that even worse is, so we had a suspect and we got a homicide. We didn't find her body for five years and the evidence against the suspect really was, it took another year to finish putting that together after we found her body. That, that That's what I remember. I, I remember in, in, and I'm I'm young at at this time, and now I'm I'm 29 now, but I, I was young at this time, and I said earlier, fascinated with law, living with older people at the time. You watch the news, and and I remember hearing about this, and in a small county like Bedford County, Royal County, you're used to petty crime and stuff, you you know, and it was like wow, a missing person. So you go on, you you become the district attorney. Now, was this case a priority for you to get, to get finished up? I mean, five years is, is a long time. I mean, I can't imagine the work that, that went into that investigation. I mean, Oh, it was absolutely a priority. And, and if, if we hadn't found her body when we did, uh, there was a pretty good chance we were going to arrest Joe Clark for kidnapping anyway, um, because we had such a strong case, even before we found her body, we were pretty much, leading up to the days we found her body and it, it was just uh, dumb luck and for lack of a better term that, that uh, uh, the person found her body off of an old logging road, not too far from the Clark residence and the Notestein farm or the, uh, the Ronnie Grubb farm where, where Holly lived. Um, it was like kind of a midway point between the two in kind of a shallow grave that had just been disrupted just enough for a, a logger to be driving by and see that, find that body. But we were most likely going to be arresting Joe Clark for kidnapping anyway, because the statute of limitations was fast approaching. It was, and we we wanted to at least have something. We always hoped to find her body so we could charge him with murder. I wrestled with charging him with murder without a body. That was going to be a really tough case, but we were probably going to charge him with kidnapping regardless because he was our prime suspect. Um, There was compelling evidence against him that he took her away from the farm that night. And then once we found her body, we knew for certain she was going to get arrested. He was going to get arrested for murder. It was just a matter of putting the case together at that point. Well, let, let's let's back up a little bit because uh, it's a compelling case. I mean, five years is a long time. And, and oh, yeah. if you're a, a family of this victim, you know, you want answers. And I'm sure you probably got phone calls. You know, I, I mean, if that, that was me and that would have been my loved one almost every day. Um, but 
to go down the, the rabbit hole a little bit, you, you, you know, are you allowed to talk about, you know, the events and the evidence that was stacking up? Absolutely. Him? You, you, you know, yeah, what? most of it's public record. Yeah. 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 So, so, so what, what stood out to you? What wasn't, didn't he set a car on fire? I, I believe, I, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. Back together. You can tell the story. Yeah. I kind of lay the, lay out the scene there, what happened that night. So, uh, she had her two children at home, I think four and six years old. They're at home. Um, Holly's bathing them. Car pulls in the driveway. She goes outside to, to talk to whoever's at this car. The kids, um, they, they, they look out the window and see their mom talking to who they called Tiny at the time. And that was the nickname the kids called Joe Clark, Tiny. He, they see her him grab her, throw her in the car, and drive away. Ronnie wasn't home at the time. That's her, the kid's dad, um, yeah. her boyfriend. He comes home. He uh, approaches the, uh, the, the, the the trailer they lived in there, and the kids come running out and say, Tiny took mommy. That's what the little boy said. Tiny took mommy. So he calls the police. The police get this information. They said, who's Tiny? And and uh, in the meantime, the state police are there. They're like, hey, Joe Clark doesn't live long, far from here, and he had a reputation for being a rough character, fit the description of the guy. And then, sure enough, Ronnie Grubb says, Tiny is Joe Clark. So they go to they go to Clark's residence on their way to Clark's residence. They get a phone call that there's a fire at the Clark residence. So they're not even at his house yet. And his car's on fire. They get there. They confront Joe. He gives this BS story that he's, you know, a car caught on fire. Uh, Something was he said it had been overheating earlier in the day that must have caught on fire. Well, Fast forward, the arsonists investigate the fire started under the seat of the car, not in the engine compartment. So it had nothing to do with the car overheating. Um, everything in the car is torched. They do find a knife in the car um, that that uh, has uh, the knife wounds. Later on, when we found Holly's uh, remains, the sweatshirt that she had been wearing, the knife matched up to the cuts on the sweatshirt in terms of – now, it's not an exact match. It's not like a fingerprint or something like yeah. that, but it was it was the same – that that knife – would be able to have made those cuts. Yeah. It was described by our uh, forensic analysis. Um, tire track found in the driveway matched a tire on Joe's car, which was also interesting because he drove an old beater and this car had four different tires on it. Yeah. And it was, it was the one tire that matched up was in the exact position on that car, uh, where the evidence would have shown it would have been, um, it matched up exactly, and the the tire was actually a rare tire. When we went, needed to get a second one to do some comparative analysis, I think we had to drive like 280 miles away to go buy one to match it. Um, it was that much of a unique tire. Um, Joe Joe Clark had a long history of sexual violence towards women. Uh, there was there was a lot of little pieces of evidence that came together to uh, point the finger at Joe Clark. Um, you know, the car fire and the tire track were the two most compelling. Um, there was some other, there was beer bottles uh, found near the scene that matched beer bottles that were in the, uh, in his cooler. So, you know, similar, uh, it was, and it was not, I mean, a lot of people drink Budweiser bottles of beer. So it was, that was sort of a, a piece of evidence that wasn't super compelling, but it, it certainly didn't help him. Yeah. Um, and Joe, Joe was just his demeanor about the whole thing was just very guilty. I mean, you know, he, he would talk to Holly about Holly. He would call her the bitch. You know, this bitch did this, this bitch yeah. did that. Whereas if, if you if you if you were accused of a murder that you didn't commit, you would take the position more like, hey, I'm sorry 
that these children lost their mother, but I didn't do it. You know what I mean? Like, why is she, well, if you don't know her and you didn't kill her, why, why you got negative things to say about her? She's dead, you know? Yeah. And you know, that never helped them. Um, For sure. <laughs> the guy was guilty, guilty of sin. I mean, it was, uh, it was an extremely compelling case. Took two weeks to try the case. So, you know, I'm trying to give you the cliff notes version of what happened. There's actually well, yeah. uh discovery ID that it did a show about it. Um, called yeah, no. uh, nightmare next door, death mm-hmm. on the farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And, and we're going to get into And like I said, I'm not going to spend all day on this because there's another one I want to go over. But no, yeah, sure. But, you know, I, I heard a lot, you know, and I'm sure you did all that. They arrested the guy because he, you know, you know and you, you always hear negative things. They arrested him because, you know, they needed a victim. He's a poor guy, couldn't afford a defense attorney, blah, blah, blah. And, um, <laughs> his defense have, attorney, he couldn't actually is the defense attorney. He couldn't afford his mother spent about one hundred thousand dollars for Wow, that, 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 that's crazy. Yeah, well, well, no, I'm sure you've, you've heard things like that, too. Oh, yeah. Um, but one of the things that was, was compelling with me is, is you know, you're to see that as, as a kid. You know, I, I have a little boy now and I have a wife and I would think for that to be happening has to be mesmerizing. So you go in and now he after the police talked to him, though, he was not arrested. Right. He was left go for like five years. Right. It took five years yes. to actually put him in handcuffs correct absolutely yep yeah what was that day yeah. like for you to be able to go and actually i mean i'm sure you weren't there but to send troopers to his house to put handcuffs on him oh uh, it was it was emotional um we had met with the family told them what was going to happen and um you know they, they were ronnie uh, was oftentimes in disbelief because this was his friend and he had a hard time accepting that joe would do this Obviously, by the end of the trial and, and probably far before the end of the trial, he, you know, he was satisfied that we had the right guy and that he did it. But he was even in disbelief at that point. But, you know, the evidence was overwhelming and he saw it. But it was a very uh, emotional um, but rewarding day to be able to bring justice to that family, because what happened to to Holly should have never happened. Um, and Joe Clark had been in so much trouble in his life and, and, and danced through the raindrops. Uh, he had been charged with some serious crimes in the past and was found not guilty a couple times of serious crimes. So I looked at it like this is a dangerous person. He's going to do it again. Um, you know, he, if, he, if, he, if he if he gets off of this, he'll be emboldened. It would it will give him a license to do this again in his own mind because he can get away with it. So the weight of the world was on my shoulders and it was a death penalty case. And um, that was that was my first death penalty case. And uh you know, get to, to get to the point where you convict a person and the next step is you're going to ask the jury to put this person to death. That was probably the most weight that had ever been on my shoulders in my life. And um, the jury didn't put him to death, and, but that wasn't my decision. That's their decision. Um, I was just the one asking them to do it. So I can only imagine what it feels like when it's your decision. I, my decision was only to ask them to do it. They were the ones that had to decide to do it. And I had a tremendous weight on my shoulders. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, a very surreal moment in my life, uh, to be in a position to ask, uh, 12 people to put somebody to death. Um, they didn't do it. I kind of, um, I understood, I understood I accepted the verdict that they didn't put him to death, but he'll serve every minute of the rest of his life behind bars. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you kind of went, because it, it took you, if I recall, that's when I ran, it took you twice. Didn't you have to try this case twice? We did. We did. Um, we had a mistrial the first time. The jury voted 11 to 1 to convict. Um, and it was uh, 
it was, you know, it was one juror that I wasn't a hundred percent sure about, but she was actually the first juror I selected. Uh, so in, in a way from that first time we tried the case, I, I got it wrong right from the very first juror I picked because uh, she was just, I talked to the other 11 jurors after the case was over and they were pretty adamant that we had a strong case that we should be able to convict this guy. We should retry him. Don't, you know, they, they told us, hey, I wouldn't offer a plea to the guy, you know, he's committed murder. We're convinced he's guilty, but you had one juror who was just unreasonable in her expectations of what, you know, what type of evidence they needed to see. Um, I don't know if she would have convicted the guy if we showed a video of him doing it, yeah. but yeah, it was well, 11 I, to one. We, we picked a jury from Butler County um, because this, we had to get an out of County jury. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. You had to get an out of County jury, but it was tried in Bedford County. You just correct. Had an out of County jury. Correct. Yeah. Okay. We, we traveled to Butler County, picked the jurors and brought them back to Bedford County to, to they were sequestered, stayed out at the uh, arena. Um, the old, uh, was it the quality in there? Um, yeah. 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 And, and that, and, 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 you know, and a lot of people don't know when you're, when you're on a trial, you know, you're on jury duty, uh, you know, for a, a murder trial like that. And I, I want to call it high. I don't want to call it high profile, but in an area like this, it was high profile. I, I mean, you know, you have two local news stations and they were covering it. It was in every newspaper. I'm sure you felt immense pressure. But, you know, one of the things with the jury is they were not able to see any new, you know, you we have to house them. A lot of people don't understand that, you know, you know, put them up in a hotel and, and feed them and stuff. But I wanted to ask your how old were you when you tried the first case? If you don't mind me asking. Oh, I was uh, so, so 32. 32. Okay, so you're, thir- you're 32 years old. You, you walk into a courtroom and, and you're unsuccessful in, in a way, and you know that that's your guy. So what what's running through your – did you ever have any doubt when you got that verdict, maybe to plea, or, or did you know instantly, hey, we're going to go back and we're going to try again because I know we can win? <clears throat> no. Um, on, during the first trial, the jury had been deliberating for, I think, seven days. Okay. After we arrested the case. And yeah, there were a lot of discussions had about making a plea offer, um, you know, to see if we can get this case resolved. Third degree murder has a 40 year maximum. So if we pled guilty to third degree murder, we could get 20 to 40 years. There was some discussion had about that because the jury, I thought we had a really strong case. And the jury was deliberating for like, I think, five, seven days before they returned a verdict of, uh, of a hung jury. They had actually yeah. come back twice and said that they were hung. And, you know, what the judge does then is give them what's called a, you know, pep talk uh, to tell them, hey, listen, it's really important. You come to a verdict, whatever it is, you know, go back there, talk some more. And they keep sending them back out to. But actually, that becomes a problem because the appellate courts could look at that and say you pressured the jury into coming to a verdict and it wasn't really fair. So you start to start worrying about what's going to happen with this case on appeal. So you start so you start talking to the family and sitting down with them and saying, maybe maybe we should offer something here. Um we never really got to the point where we made an offer, but those discussions were being had, those considerations were being made. And then when the jury returned a hung, you know, verdict of a hung jury, we were, um, then we started thinking about it again. Do we have a good enough case? You know, wonder what the, what the uh, vote was. What if it was six to six? Well, that means that we don't have a good case, right? What if it yeah. was, what if it's even worse? What if it was nine to three and the nine were for acquittal? You know, so yeah. you start thinking about these things. Well, fortunately, one of the jurors reached out to us 
and said they would like to meet with me and, and who's now Judge Livingood, but uh, Travis Livingood was my assistant DA, said they'd like to meet with us and talk to us about the case. And we were, you know, we were all ears. We wanted to. So we actually met with 11 of the jurors. And uh, they all told us, listen, you have a good case. This is and they, they said, I like what you did here. I don't like what you did there. Um, you know, maybe focus on this more focus on this. There was one thing that they really the, the one piece of evidence that those jurors told us we needed to fight harder for. So Joe Clark's under investigation for murder. Right. He knows yeah. he's under investigation for murder and he knows that his best friend or close friends, wife, even if he didn't do it, he has a girlfriend who yeah. lives out of state. And he, oh, and remember this: his car caught on fire uh, at the same time. He's writing yeah. his girlfriend letters, and we had a letter. I think it was a day after the murder that he wrote to his girlfriend, and in that letter, tells her he loves her, he misses her, he wants to see her, he can't wait to spend time with her. Never mentions, hey, by the way, my car caught on fire yesterday. Never mentions his friend's uh, wife was abducted and and potentially murdered, and obviously never mentions the police were at his house asking him about it. It was it was compelling evidence by its omission. Like you're writing letters to your girlfriend that you're telling her he would be like, oh, I took a walk today and I smelled the flowers. Um, you know, I, I got the mail and, uh, you know, all I got was bills or, uh, I, you know, all, all this minutia of his life. I had eggs for breakfast. Never mentions. Oh, yeah. my car caught on fire. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty important. Yeah, uh, event. it was a consciousness of guilt argument, and we, when we presented the case the first time, we did, we kind of glossed over it. And those jurors said we would like to have read all of those letters. So when we retried the case, we made a very conscious effort to get, we fought harder to get, <clears throat> to get that evidence before the jury, uh, to argue to the court why it was compelling evidence we needed to present it, and we were successful. And and the. So by meeting with those jurors, they really helped us understand our own case better and how it was being perceived by, you know, the jurors. So yeah. when we're sitting there, so, and really, I think the defense attorneys, they may have made a mistake by not reaching out to those jurors because they would have found out how bad their case was, you know, instead of, you know, yeah. thinking they had a great compelling case, we, we found out what, what the strengths and weaknesses of our case were and improved upon those things. Well, that's what I wanted to, and, 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 but, you know, and this is a difference, I, I guess, in an opinion, but, but he had, um, from what you said earlier, uh, a good team of defense attorneys, you, you know, do you, I mean, I, I guess if you can answer that, I mean, the <laughs> guy, I believe, I do my research, I believe, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, his defense attorney that he had now is disbarred as, as well. He's, well, not he's not only disbarred, he's deceased. Um, yeah, but yeah, oh, he had some troubles of his own. Um, and yeah, he died, I think, about five years ago. Um, what I say, he was a good lawyer. Listen, he fought hard for his client. I thought he made some mistakes. Um, the, the one thing I thought was by just approaching it, I think a good defense lawyer concedes the bad parts of their case, you know, says yes. So I think the best way to defend this case, if I was a defense lawyer in this case, my defense would have been along the lines of the police did a good job. They, they investigated this. And yes, the evidence looks bad, but my client didn't do it. Instead, he took the approach. The police did a bad job. The evidence didn't look bad. The evidence didn't, it didn't look bad um, that, that, that they arrested an innocent man and that he was completely innocent and it didn't even look bad. You know, and I thought you should almost concede. Yeah, listen, it looks bad. You got that tire that matches his cars catching fire. 
Um, you know, he's, uh, he hasn't shown any type of uh, uh, empathy towards the family, but he didn't do it. You know, and I thought that would have sold better. Instead, it was, I was a bad guy. The police were bad guys. The family of the woman, they were bad people. Everybody was out to get this poor, innocent man. And the evidence didn't even look bad for him. So I didn't really think that that was the best way to approach the case. In fact, I, it helped me immensely because it made yeah. it, you know, it made it like a good versus evil instead of just a good versus, uh, you know, wrongfully accused innocent mistake. You know, pe people make mistakes. Instead of saying that the police were maliciously going after the guy, I think the better approach could have been, hey, they're mistaken in what they believe this evidence shows, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to speak ill of, of the dead, but Tom Crawford, who was the defense lawyer in that case, him and I had a long history of uh, not seeing eye to eye. Not seeing eye <laughs> to eye. Yeah, yeah, because I, I remember reading that. No, and, and then I wanted to bring it up because, I mean, you know, you have, you know, I'm assuming that the, the courtroom is where you performed best at at that time. You know, that was your, if you want to make an analogy, that was your great, Absolutely. Your, your football field. And, and that's one thing that I've always liked about law is when you, you have these high profile cases or, or not even high profile, but cases, and you've got two pit bull lawyers. And I'm not saying he was, oh, no, a he was a pit bull. No, no, you know, there's, there's no question about it. He was a fighter. And they're going, yeah. And they're going at it. You know, it almost comes down to, okay, who, Who's going to have the best, the best case? Who's going to have the best attorney? Now, I wanted to ask you this. You're, 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 you're trying the, the case, you know, any, any case. And you're like, huh, have you ever said, what, what, have you ever sat and thought to yourself, you know, even though, you know, the guy did it or you have evidence, have you ever thought, wow, man, this attorney's doing a really good job and, and, and boy, this might go the other way. You, you know, is that, has that ever happened to you in your career? I'm, I'm sure it has, but you know, to comment. On oh, absolutely. That a little bit. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I had that happen a couple of times. I, uh, you know, listen, I, I tried a lot of cases. I won a lot of cases, but I lost some too. And, um, I never, I never felt that I lost it because the, the guy didn't commit the crime or, um, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't have, uh, a confidence that he was guilty, but, you know, uh, sometimes the guy had a darn good lawyer that was able to exploit the holes in my case and, um, you know, able to create that reasonable doubt. Because you got to remember, in our system of justice, we got to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense only has to create a reasonable doubt. So, you know, I could I could win. You know, you could be 90 percent sure that my side of the case is right. That 10 percent is reasonable doubt. You know, you got to find the guy not guilty. You know, it's not to a, it's not to 100 percent mathematical certainty, but it is to. A, a, um, a degree that you'd be confident in this decision. So, yeah, I've, I've been out lawyered. I, I could, there's a couple lawyers that come to mind um, that, that have, that always impressed me as good lawyers. Um, one of them was uh, one of my, one of my closest friends, Steve Passarello, who he's also deceased now. Um, he, when I got myself in trouble and I too, I hired, he was my, my lawyer. Right. And so you call yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, no, in my, no. in in my time right. as a prosecutor, I saw a lot of good lawyers and, uh, I, you know, I'd name names, but I'd be doing an injustice to the ones that I uh, leave out. So, um, yeah. For sure. It, no, no, no. I, and, and, I was just curious, curious yeah. about that. The know? one thing people make a mistake about is they think a good lawyer is a lawyer who, quote unquote, gets you off, right? Gets you out of the trouble you're in. And that's that's kind of the mistake that people make. A good lawyer gets you, puts you in the best position you could possibly be in, given the circumstances that you're in, you know? Um you know, and it's not a matter of, you know, getting you off the charges. It's putting you in the best position you could possibly be in, 
given what's there, whether it be negotiating a good plea agreement. And, you know, kind of going back to what you said, those lawyers that I knew that if we tried this case, we're going to be well prepared, hold my feet to the fire, poke holes in my case and make make this a very difficult case. You know, sometimes when you sat down with that lawyer, they got a more favorable plea agreement because you you knew that they were going to make a good case and you needed to, you know, maybe this wasn't the best case to go to trial on, work something out. Yeah, for sure. So we'll fast forward back on topic. You you go at it again. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure you you know, it's just like a yeah. rematch in, in a yeah. football game. You know, you're, you're going to change your strategy a little bit, but you're still going to have the same goal is to win. And uh, the second one, I think, and, and correct, it wasn't as long. And I think it was more of a slam dunk. Am I right or am I wrong? No, you're, you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head. And, and the reason for that is while our side made adjustments, you know, while things came up in that trial that we said, OK, this didn't go over the way we wanted it to. This piece of evidence wasn't received the way we expected. We're going to present this in a different way, repackage it and, and present it and maybe emphasize some things more, de-emphasize others. The defense didn't make a single adjustment. In fact, in fact, there was a piece of evidence. We found a knife in the car. And in the opening statement in the first trial, the defense lawyer said that that knife was not found in the car, but instead was found in Clark's bedroom. Clark got on the stand and testified. And I asked him, where was that knife? And he said it was in my car. So his lawyer told the jury that this this knife had been planted but it was taken from his bedroom. And the defendant himself got on the stand and said, oh, no, I kept that in the backseat of my car. He said, I use it for, I don't know, some type of, I forget what he said he used it for, some type of useful purpose. In the second trial, they did it again. The defense lawyer got up and said, and they're going to tell you that they found this knife in the car and that's a lie. They found it in his bedroom. And again, the defendant got on the stand and acknowledged, which he would have had to. I had him on the record, on record from the last time, admitting that the knife was found. So the reason that, that we, I think it was like you used the phrase slam dunk the second time, you know, that may be overstating it a little bit because you're still sweating. You got a lot on the line there, but was because we made the necessary adjustments. They made no adjustment. They, they went back and, you know, you know how easy it is to prepare against somebody that comes back at you with the same exact game plan. In fact, that's the only thing that kind of threw us off was how little they adjusted. I mean, there's no adjustment on this side at all. They're going to present the same case the same way with no you know, they didn't even they didn't even see the mistakes that they may have made. And believe me, no matter who you are, you're going to make mistakes. And you got to you got to make sure. sure you're fixing those the second time around. They didn't. Well, I mean, and that's that's what's uh, you know, I, I remember I was a, a teenager. I, I sat um, in that courtroom a little bit. I had a attributions at the time of being okay. an attorney. And if you if you look at any hot you know case that you know, you got to try twice that you've ever seen in the news, you, you know, for example, that, you know, uh, the Menendez sure. trial, you, you know, or just for example, there's a difference from the prosecution from the first trial to the second There's always a difference. And you're right. And if you don't make adjustments, that's what happens. So that's um kind of an injustice on Joe Clark's side, you know, that the money that he spent, you know, he did not get a, a good, a good defense, you, you know, cause he's still a human <clears throat> being no matter what he does. And, you know, he deserves a good defense. Um, so you get the verdict. What, what was that like with him? Did you see any emotion in, in Joe Clark? Did, you know, what was he like through the trials? You know, yeah. we talk about that a little bit. No, no, he, he, uh, he portrayed himself as very entitled. Um, a mama's boy, you know, um, he, he could do no wrong. 
Um, his, his family sort of fed into that. His family kind of treated him like he could do no wrong. There was uh, he had a very, like I said, a very entitled uh, uh, demeanor about him. Wrongfully accused, did no wrong, couldn't see anything, any mistakes that he did wrong. Just um, very little empathy towards these children who saw their mother abducted. And even if they were wrong, they thought he did it. And if nothing else, he should have, you would have expected some empathy for these people who lost a loved one. Never showed it. Even when they convicted him, uh, he, uh, he more of just anger that the system was, you know, um, not seeing uh, th- this for what he expected them to see it for. So, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he's a, he was a scary guy. He was a scary guy. And I actually looked at all the people I've ever prosecuted. He was the one I thought, if I don't put this guy away, he might come after me, <laughs> you know, for the most part. Yeah. 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 And I never guy. felt that way. Most of big the time when I prosecuted people, I felt like, you know, they know they did something wrong. They know this is just part of the cost of doing business. And, um, you know, they know I have a job to do and they mostly for the vast majority of people respected the fact that I was just doing a job. Joe Clark had no respect for that. He looked at it like the police were the bad guys. I was a bad guy and uh, he was wrongfully accused. And I, I truly believe that if he uh, if he had the opportunity, uh, you know, he'd come after me or my family. No question. So yeah, it, it actually sure. motivated me more. I got to put this guy that, or scary. I'm, I'm next yeah. on the chopping block. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you this and I, I don't try to mean nonsense, but um, has has he tried to appeal anything? I mean, I'm sure that, you know, he was going to. I, I remember you saying that when you convicted him, you know, you got you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. Right. What else do you have to do than trying to get out, which that's a, it's a true statement. Um, has he tried to appeal or got a new attorney or anything? like yeah, that? I mean, um, you know, there's a certain amount of appeals that are as of right, meaning you have a right to appeal this path, like to the superior court, then to the Supreme Court. Um, and he did follow that path. He also filed what's called a post-conviction relief act petition, which means that he's uh, challenging the whole process afterwards. His, you know, and he, you always have to get a new lawyer for that because one of the things you're challenging is the competence of your lawyer. He went down that road and, and lost that. Now, when these guys are sitting in jail for the rest of their life, there's always opportunities to file different things. You can file things in federal court. Um, there's opportunities. I have not been told that he's filed anything in, in quite a while. Um, he's, listen, he's in jail for the rest of his life. Do I expect that he'll file something at some point? They almost always do. They got nothing better to do. Um, but usually it, it becomes less and less likely that you have any opportunity for success. So um, I don't envision that he will ever, uh, you know, have anything of merit on an appeal. Um, but I, at the same time, would he file something? Yes, it's quite possible. But when you got all, the rest of your life to think about it, it's amazing what you could come up with. For sure. For sure. So you, yeah, no, and that's, you know, that, that was the, the, at that time, probably the biggest case of your career at, at the time. Oh yeah. Or, or no, there... I, I, it was the biggest. And even though I had uh, two other death penalty cases since then, none of them, neither of them went to trial. Um, we, we resolved them by pleas yeah. and uh, we, uh, so yeah, it, no, without question, that was the biggest case of, of my uh, career. And I never had anything uh, of that magnitude. Um, you know, I had a lot of other big cases and I had a lot of other long sentences, put people away, a lot of serious cases, but yeah, that was the, the most high profile and most, uh, uh, 
interesting, uh, for lack for sure. of a better term, case yeah. that I've sorry about that. I got had to decline a call. So you go back, and um, I, I, I'm sure everybody, you, you know, you you go back, you're you're doing your thing, and and next thing you know, and, and this one really really hits home. Uh, you know the the Karen uh, Gearholt, Karen the men, um, you know from you know I did not know her personally, but uh, I had a couple of brothers and cousins that went to school with her. You know, uh, ha, ha. Uh, talk about that. They sorry. Um, a guy goes into Walmart. That's okay. And get you know buys a hacksaw, saws off a shotgun, goes to the place where his wife is working with his children in the vehicle, correct me if I'm wrong, and does, I mean, commits a, uh, if, if you ask me, a, a heinous crime. I mean, just something that's totally outrageous, unthinkable. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, what, what was it like when you got that phone call? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, the, the, oh, the kids weren't, okay. he didn't have his kids okay, in the I apologize. Car. I do um, apologize. No, 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 he didn't. No, that's okay. That's okay. But uh, yeah, they, we had video of him going into the Walmart, buying the buying the shotgun shells, uh, hiding behind a um, a storage container there while he's watching for her to come out of McDonald's on her break. Confronts her in the parking lot and just blasts her with a shotgun right in the parking lot. There, um, there was I mean there was no question of his guilt. There was no question of his uh, you know um, intentions. Um, and uh, yeah, that was awful. I, I actually went to the scene of that crime that night and uh, um, observed, you know, um, the scene. Uh, and it was it was awful. Um, she, but you know, uh, Gearholt, that guy, he was uh, he was kind of a crybaby. I mean, he was. Uh, I'd call him another mama's boy. Just uh, didn't really ever think he could do anything wrong. Expected everybody to buy his crocodile tears, but uh, he had a, a good lawyer. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Tom Dickey well. was his lawyer, and, and basically told him, "Hey, listen, they're they're uh, they're seeking the death penalty in this case, and there's a pretty good chance they're probably going to get it. So if they offer you a plea for life in prison, yeah. you should take it." <laughs> um, after a bunch of whining around, you know, he finally did. So that case was resolved. We actually started jury selection. I think we picked one juror, um, and he uh, entered into a guilty plea that night. Um, there was there was actually an interesting twist to that case that yeah, the public can you share uh, that. Can may or may not know, but it can, actually, you, uh, yeah, that? share that with the public. Yeah, yeah I don't absolutely. think any everybody knows this. So go ahead. You, yeah. So when are you talking about what he did yeah. the night before his plea? Yeah. So w- what happened was he, we went to I sat down with him and his lawyer, and his lawyer said to me, you know, they said, hey, listen, you know, he wants to accept responsibility here, but you know, he has some conditions, right? I said, well, whatever. I mean, listen, I said to him, you know, you don't make the conditions, but if you are asking me for something reasonable and you're going to plead guilty and, and take life in prison, I'll see what I can do. So his request was that I somehow make sure he gets buried next to his wife when he dies, the wife he killed. And I said, absolutely not. You know, we're not, you know, first of all, I don't have any authority to do that. Second of all, I'm not getting involved in it. I'm going to talk to the family to make sure it sounds ridiculous to me. No, we're not doing that. I said, so then he comes back to me. He says, well, maybe this, could I go visit her grave site to apologize? And I thought to myself, you know, who's it hurt? And I mean, if this guy's going to save the taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars in a death penalty case, go to prison for the rest of his life, accept all that. And all I got to do is let him go to the gravesite and apologize. 
I said, you know what? I, yeah, I, okay. I think I'll do that. I, I, I talked to the police. I talked to my assistant DA. Um, I kind of weighed out the pros and the cons. The one mistake I did make is I didn't talk uh-huh. to the family. And only because I didn't, I didn't see the need. I, I, I you know, and, and I regret that because unlike, uh, you know, you know, we, we were expecting to do all this and it just kind of be off the record or, you know, not off the record, but we, I even told the judge we were doing it. Um, we told the judges what we're going to do. We're going to let the police take him to the gravesite tonight. He's going to have five minutes to pay his respects, you know, say he's sorry, whatever it is he's going to do. And then be taken back to jail. He's going to come in here tomorrow morning and enter a plea. So I didn't talk to the family about it. He comes the next day. The police take him that night. He goes to the gravesite. He, he pays his respects, remorse, you know, everything. Take him back to the jail. He comes to court the next day. And like a man, he says, hey, Mr. Higgins, you, you kept your end of the bargain. I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. I'm going to have a guilty plea today, except a sentence of life in prison. So I told the family, I said, hey, listen, he's going to enter a guilty plea. He's going to get life in prison. They were happy. Everything was good. He does it. He enters the plea. Everything's good. About Two months later, he files a petition asking to withdraw his plea and puts in all this information in there and says, twist this whole thing around. He says that I directed the state police to drive him to her grave, hold him in front of the grave and tell him, look what you did and tell him you better plead guilty (laughs) for what you did to this woman. Blah, blah, blah. Makes up this whole story. So we go to court and his lawyer tells the judge, nah, judge, that's not what happened. You know, uh, you know, I guess I can't represent this guy anymore because the story he's telling isn't what happened. He requested this of the DA. The DA was decent enough to let him do it. And here we are hearing this, you know, so his lawyer got out of the case at that point. And the, but the sad part was that I had to then tell the family what I did public. Yeah, because yeah. it was now public, you know? Yeah. But they were good about it. They were decent about it. They, they said, hey, we understand. You know, you got tough decisions to make. You know, yeah, we wish you would have told us, but we probably would have opposed it. And, you know, we may have ended up in a trial and having to go through all that. So they, they, they told me they respected the decision that I made and that, you know, it was for the, for the best. So I, I appreciated that. And, I, you know, I don't even know in hindsight if I say I regret not telling them, but at the same time, I don't know that at what that purpose it would have served. It all came to the fact that, here I am surprised that a man who would do that to his wife doesn't have the integrity to tell the truth about what happened when he entered his plea. Right. Like I'm, I'm the, I'm kind of the dumbass there thinking that this guy's got even an ounce of integrity. For sure. For sure. No, I get it. No, uh, there's high profile cases, you know, boom, boom. uh, Just unbelievable. And, and I know, like I said, once again, no disrespect to the families. I would never do that. I know you're not either, but I, I know uh, a couple of her family members and they're, they're good people and uh, a, a true utter shame, a true utter shame. But um, so, yep. you know, we're just going to spitball here for the next couple minutes. Uh, you got some time. Uh, if you're running, you know, if you're running out of time, let me know if I'm talking too much. Um, uh, so any, um, so what was it like, you, you know, um, to arrest, uh, the the and I know you don't know who I'm talking about. You know, uh, there was a big drug dealer uh, in Saxton, an old man. Uh, what what was that like? Um, I, I'll tell you a funny story about that, Bill. Yeah, Eugene. Yeah, Gene. Yeah, I'm Gene running, Baker. Um, it was in the summertime, and uh, two of the undercover state cops. I'm not going to mention their name due to you know they don't need to be acknowledged. They're good people, but I want to keep their privacy held. Uh, you know, they're 
So I'm running. It's in the summertime, and uh, I'm training for football season, and I'm on a run. I wake up at like 6 o'clock every morning, and I'm running. And I used to run past this house um, every other day when I'd go down. I'd park my car at the state park, and I'd run past his house. Well, I'm, I'm coming up to the house, and next thing you know, I see what I think at the time is um, a, a standoff. And next thing you know, um, I'm grabbed. Uh, by, you know, one of my coaches who works for the, you know, and he was like, you need to get your ass out of here and, and go back home. And of course, I'm, you know, a young, naive 17 year old. I'm like, hey, what's going on here? I want to see what's good. And he's like, go now. Well, needless to say, on my way running back to my car, I had to run. So I start walking and I'm turning my head and I see, you know, the guy get out of the car. I see the police, you know, take him down. It was, you know, at the time, I thought, you know, pretty cool. But just to hear when I found out that that man, because I because I know him uh, on a personal note, he knew my family and stuff. I mean, helped a lot of people get jobs in the carpenters union and stuff. When I found out that that guy was a, a drug dealer at that level was one of the most shocking things in my life. I would have bet you a million dollars if you'd have told me he's one of the biggest drug dealers in the county. I'd have said, yeah, right. You know. So that was probably a big drug case for you and during the time you were DA. Am I, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, Gene Baker is an interesting case because by all accounts, he had been a pretty decent law-abiding guy most of his life um, and uh, got into this very late in life. Uh, he was the oldest drug dealer I ever prosecuted, <laughs> I think. Um, it's probably in his 70s, uh, maybe, Eight, maybe 80s close now. to 80. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, he, uh, but he was a gentleman. Like I, it was one of the the, the most uh, gentlemanly like uh, people I ever prosecuted. Always respectful to me, the court. Um, oddly, he went to trial in that case, and he didn't even really have a defense because he got on the stand and told his story. And his story was more along the lines of how he got into being a drug dealer. Uh, his grandson really got him into it. He saw his, his grandson was into drugs and. He kind of, you know, saw an opportunity uh, and I, I, you know, I'm working off a memory here, um, but I remember him testifying. He even I remember him even demonstrating to the jury how he smoked crack out of a uh, a can. Yeah. And and it was like I was sitting there thinking there's no way a guy's going to sit on the stand, demonstrate to the jury how he smokes crack out of a can, admit that he sold drugs and only wants the jury to hear his story. They're going to find him guilty. And they found him guilty. Sure enough. Um, and, uh, he got a pretty significant sentence. I'm he's thinking, a, did he, if he might've got 10 or even 15 like, I years, think was 10. I, but I think, was it 10 to 20? I, I think it might've been, but then later on he filed a, a PCRA and we agreed to reduce his sentence. I took into account his, his acceptance of responsibility, which is unusual. Cause usually when a person goes to trial, you say they didn't accept responsibility, but his defense was all about accepting responsibility. He's like, I did it. It was just like, uh, it was sometimes we call that a yeah. slow plea where you're pleading guilty, but we got to still go through this trial process. Um, he, uh, he accepted full responsibility. He, he, an otherwise, um, you know, crime-free life. I think as he got older, he was trying to, you know, be young again, spend time with his grandson and press younger women. Um, something like that yeah, money. Yeah. I don't yeah, he know. Had a lot, but um, he, had, he had a lot he, of, yeah. Uh, and, uh, it's unfortunate. He he's out now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought he was, and uh, yeah, he was a he was a like I said, he seemed like a decent guy. 
who, who made some serious mistakes, got into the wrong lifestyle. So, you know, and um, like I said, when we went to court for after his sentence, he fought a post-conviction relief act. And I'm pretty sure we agreed to reduce his sentence maybe to five or seven years, something like that um, by agreement, which is unusual, you know, because to the victor goes the spoils. Usually when you go to trial, you don't come back and renegotiate a, a reduced sentence. But in this case, I, I took the position that, you know, hey, this guy seems like an okay guy that really uh, screwed up for a while here and for, kind of reward him for his otherwise um, law-abiding yeah, life. For sure, for sure. So um, let's let's fast forward a little bit um, and, and, and uh, you know, talk about uh, some other things, you, uh, a little bit. Um, so, uh, you know, the last thing I want to talk about as far as you being a DA, and then I want to ask some other questions, is, is if you don't mind, and we agreed before the show, uh, on a private phone call that, Hey, if it's something you can't talk about, you, you can't talk about, but um, I, I've always wanted to ask you this and, um, you know, everything happens, you know, for a reason. Um, what, what was going through your mind the day that you had to resign from being the district attorney? Cause the reason I asked that is we just talked about these emotional highs and, and everything that you did. And, and there's so much more, but, you know, we just talked about some three big cases and there's many more. And now we're going to talk about the the downfall and, and, and you've rebuilt yourself. What was that like? If, if you want to comment, if not, I totally understand. Oh, no, no, I, I, I don't mind. Um, You know, the interesting thing about that was um, I knew it was happening. You know what I mean? I knew I was on oh, investigation. I had already. uh. T- yeah, yeah, it wasn't like that day that they charged me. It came out of nowhere. I mean, I had already been apprised of the investigation and already uh, spoken to um, my lawyer and I had already spoken to the attorney general's office. Uh, we had actually negotiated a resolution. So the day when charges became public, I already knew that I was going to resign, that I was going to accept responsibility, that I was going to plead guilty and that I was going to get um, a sentence of no incarceration. It was all uh, previously negotiated. And, you know, I never want to uh, minimize what happened. So I don't like to talk about uh, the, the, the things that I agree with or disagree with, because I definitely made some serious mistakes, but a lot of the things that um, um, were, were happening, this happened in 2018, the events that led up to it had happened in 2016. And a lot of those things um, my, my wife and I had already worked through and I had already kind of, um, made amends for those things and was working towards being a better person and, 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 you know, not correcting the mistakes that I made. Right. So as, as, uh, it became public for the first time, it wasn't, it was something that me and my family had already been dealing with. Um, so yeah, it was awful that, you know, now it's on the front page of the paper and it's public, my, my, my own personal, um, demons that, that, that had caused this, we're now going to be, uh, you know, in the public eye and I was going to be, uh, you know, humiliated, embarrassed and have to resign my position. A lot of it I'd already dealt with um, in my personal life. Yeah. And now it was just becoming public, if that makes yeah. sense. But um, yeah, it was it was it was hard. I felt uh, a lot of remorse that I let the public down because, listen, I was uh, I know I was well respected in the community. I know that I, people were very happy with the work that I had done as DA and I was letting them down. I wasn't able to finish the job. I was in my second year of my, um, fourth term. I still had two years to serve in that term. And I don't know what I would have done after that. Um, maybe I ran for a fifth term, maybe not. I don't know, but 
um, I wasn't able to to deliver to the public what I had promised I would, and I let them down. Uh, you know, um, you know, I've, I've I've always been remorseful about that, and uh, same to my family. I let my family down, I let my wife down, I let my kids down, and uh, you know, there's not much more to be said about it other than the fact that uh, you know, when when your chips are down, when you, when you're when you do something that that bad, it's sometimes you know tragedy happens to people. But a lot of times it happens to people by things that they didn't cause. You know, I mean, somebody is loses a loved one in a tragic accident or they're in a tragic accident and they're they're handicapped and they're not able to walk ever again or they're diagnosed with cancer. And these awful things happen to people, but they didn't bring it on themselves. And there's a lot of sympathy for those people. But when the adversity you're dealing with in your life is something you caused, maybe you don't get so much sympathy and maybe you don't deserve much sympathy. And it's not sympathy that I was looking for, but it was, you know, that makes it even harder because there's people out there saying, well, you brought it on yourself, you know, and including myself, you know, saying that. And, um, you know, that's kind of where I came full circle. And I said, you know, I'm going to rebuild my life. I knew that I, I, I would. You know, I'm a fighter. Um, I, I bounce back. I'm resilient. I, every time I've made a mistake, I've learned from that mistake and, and, and made a better person of myself. But what I was able to do is uh, take the skills that I had as a lawyer. I lost my law license lost my law career, but the skills that I had as a lawyer, I looked at, you know, opportunities, um, where I could use those skills. Uh, I, I ran a restaurant for a short period of time. My good friend, Brian Speck gave me an opportunity to uh, run, uh, his restaurant, bad boys in Somerset. Yeah. And that didn't, that didn't work out. So that was kind of another failure I was dealing with that I failed in the restaurant business, but I knew I'd just keep fighting. And, and I looked at where can I use these skills to better myself and, and to use those skills, in a different way. And sales will seem to be the most natural fit. So I've been in sales now for the last year and a half. I, I'm doing a great, I have a great career in sales. I'm, I'm, I'm I was, a, I was actually honored as the uh, sales rep of the year for, for install America last year. Um, and uh, I'm proud yeah. of that because I had no, no background in sales per se. Although I think the skills of trying cases, getting elected to office, those are sales skills. And I was able to translate them into a sales career and I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing great. And things are great with my family. I have my podcast myself, like I said, and I try to do things to help other people. Um, I, you and I talked a little bit that I have a, a book I'm working on and sometimes I'm motivated, sometimes not so much. And our conversation today, just telling me that you'd probably buy a copy of that book uh, motivated me. I'll probably yeah. write another chapter. Of that well, book yeah, today. I mean, you know, um, no, I mean, that, that's what my show is going to be about, you know, facing your fears, adversities, you know, it takes a lot just to even do a podcast and put it out there. You know, I don't, I am, and I want people to listen to the show and hear our conversation, but whether one person listens to it or not, I got up and I did it and I faced the fear because I was worried, what will people think, blah, 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 but I faced my fear and, and that's what I want to get out, get out to people. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have, have you on the show is I've always admired you. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to be honest, you know, I'm not just saying that because you're on a show, but when I was a young teen, you know, like I said, I wanted to go into law. I looked up to you. I liked the, the approach. Um, and, and we share some common interests. And um, like one of the things that I, you know, I never knew until uh, we became friends on Facebook that you're a big wrestling fanatic, like, like myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So when I'm driving in my truck and, and I got to go to example, North Carolina, cause, cause I have work there, you know, uh, so what are some of the wrestling podcasts you like to listen to? I'm a huge Jim Cornette fan. Uh, I mean, when my kids are in, sometimes I don't listen to it because of the profanity, but I'm a big Cornette fan. Is there any wrestling podcast? Oh, he's good. Is there any wrestling podcast out there that you really enjoy listening to or 
Uh, you know, I listen to, I think it's called busted open. I listen to that one a lot. Um, there's another one I was just listening to. It was, oh man, I wish I could remember the name of it. It kind of put me on the spot here. It talks a lot about like the eighties wrestling, um, but you know, the heyday of wrestling for me. Um, I think it's called ringside. Uh, man, I can't think of it. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get it to you later and you can put it in the comments section of the podcast here. But yeah, I, you know what? Sometimes I'm, if I'm going to listen to a wrestling podcast, I'll just, type in wrestling and see what comes up. Um, I like to listen to a lot of people who talk about the old stuff. Uh, Bruce Pritchard, who used to be, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something um, to wrestle. About. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. He's got, yeah. 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 He's got a good one. It used to be brother love. He's got a lot of insight. You know, I was the, the, the joke I always tell about wrestling is there's two people, two types of people that talk about wrestling that I don't like one people that think wrestling's completely real. And two people that think, that they need to tell me that it's fake. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like I don't listen. It's a fun entertainment. It's sports entertainment. It's everything. Some people that, you know, that's not real. I'm like, if you think that anybody that watches wrestling thinks it's real, you don't even understand it anymore. Like they, they stopped saying it was real. What? Like years ago, 20 years when ago. I was coming yeah, up yeah. and I was a, you know, I, I, you know, I, I feel um, I'm older now, but you know, I can remember when I was a kid, the WCW, WWF then at the time was, was, was going at it Monday night. I remember flipping at eight o'clock was WCW nine o'clock was raw flipping back and forth. You know, you know, I remember those days, uh, you know, a lot of good wrestlers did, but I, but I think one of the things that's a tragedy is so many wrestlers that have died in the years past, you know, just, just a shame, you know, and Pat Patterson has yeah. just passed away. You know, you know, I, I loved watching him, you know, when he was a stooge, you know, but uh, Pritchard's got a really yeah. good show and really goes in depth of what the stories. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, I'm a big undertaker fan. Anybody that knows me knows I've been. So I, I think that he's definitely done wrestling now what do you think about him coming out and telling stories and stuff he's been getting a lot of backlash about that because he was always one that when he was in the ring you never saw him doing interviews and stuff he never did any you know work shoot promos or anything like that so what do you think about the undertaker he was just on rogan's show what, what do you think of that well i think I, I like it i think it's great and i think it's consistent with what he has done throughout his career he, he basically stayed in character 24 7 365 and uh when he retired he retired and now you know now he's going to talk about it and i i think it's great i think uh guys you know think about these guys that get a chance to to speak their mind whenever they want you know um he never did that he never had the opportunity so this guy's got you know 30 years of pent up <laughs> you know energy that he wants to share and uh you know the guy loves the business he was um, the hardest worker in the business and he's sharing those stories. And I think it, it you know, I, I did hear there was a little pushback. I didn't really listen to what the rationale what people are pushing back on it was, but you know, here's a guy. I think if you're a wrestling fan, you, you should be, you know, in just in awe of whatever this guy has to say, because the guy has, um, you know, wealth of knowledge and he never was able to share it because he stayed in character uh, more so than anybody probably in the history of wrestling. Yeah, no, so. no, that's crazy. And and <laughs> I don't have as much time today to watch it as, as I used to. And But I love reminiscing about, you know, the old times wrestling. You know, I was a big Undertaker fan, Shawn Michaels, DX, you, you, you know. 
But uh, I love when I have time, I hop in my truck or, or my car and, and I'm taking a long drive and I put a podcast on or the WWE app and I start, you know, watching or listening to the old promos and, and stuff. You know, the, the Mid-South days, I'm a big Mid-South wrestling fan. Uh, I, I go on there and watch the old matches. So, no, 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 that's something I didn't know. Well, if everybody maybe, uh, go ahead. maybe we could do some cross promotion here. I, I was uh, maybe me, you and I can do a WrestleMania uh, podcast on my show right after uh uh, either before or after WrestleMania yeah, this year. It. No, no, no. I, I would love it. Um, <laughs> every year, and, and now, now my kids uh, are getting into it, so that so they watch it. But uh, I tell you what, um, what's the new one that's out? Oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to sound like a total AEW. 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 Yeah, I'm, I'm a big yeah. fan. Uh, I mean, my man Cornette doesn't like it. I love Jimmy Cornette. I would love to beat him, but he doesn't like it. But but I think it's new. It's something different, and it's for years. It was WWE. That was it. Once the, and, and I think when WCW shut its doors down, in my opinion, I think that was the worst thing that happened to the wrestling business. And here's for fans and the superstars, because when you have so many places to go, you're going to up your level. We want to be better. When there's only one, you know, who are you really competing against out do other than yourself? And it was nice as a fan to be able to watch. If you didn't like that brand of wrestling, you had this brand. Or this brand, you know. Oh, the Monday Night Wars was uh, probably one of the greatest eras in wrestling. I mean, that was, you know, they were just trying to outdo each other every week. And I think both WCW and WWE were at their very best when they were at each other's throats. For sure. And, 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 you know, I think AEW serves that purpose right now. Um, It's not quite where WCW was yet, but, uh, you know, they had the right people in there with Chris Jericho and um, they're, they're, if they could get, I'll tell you what. If they could get CM Punk in, um, yeah, that would be a, it'd be a, whole, a game changer, game changer, absolutely. And <laughs> if COVID, I mean, too, you know, we've had COVID. They really haven't oh, yeah. put people in the arenas. I really think if there was people in the arenas, I really think you would see AEW stock rise. Because also, Tony Khan's got Vince McMahon money. You, you know, you know what I'm saying. And and Ted Turner's did too. A lot of, and I'm not trying to go back. A lot of people don't understand. You know, Ted Turner. And, and WCW, they just became, you know, CNN became so corporate. They didn't want a wrestling program, you know? Yeah. You know, they didn't, they didn't yep. want a wrestling show on. TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could, we could probably go on for another hour talking about wrestling, man. So we'll try to, we'll try to put something together, maybe co- collaborate on something, uh, do, do a nice wrestling podcast. Cause I got hundreds of stories about wrestling I could share with you. For sure. Well, no, and, <laughs> it's been a know, big part of my life. Yeah, no, me, me too. Uh, my, my gram. Her and I used to watch it, but uh, going down the rabbit hole here in the next, you know, I got about five more minutes. Just a couple quick things that I wanted to talk to you about. You're a big Eagles fan. Uh, some similarities. I, I am. I'm not. Uh, I haven't followed them as much since they let Peterson go. Uh, I, I thought that was kind of crappy. Um, they got to get rid of the ball. Did they get rid of the ball baby yet? Uh, because my, my thing on, I'm a big sports guy. I played football. I love it, but the NFL has changed over the years. And when the national anthem, and I'm not trying to get political here, when guys started kneeling for that, I, I said, you know what? I'm not watching it anymore. I'm not. And uh, yeah, but I did watch Brady win his uh, Super Bowl because uh, he is the goat. I don't, I don't care what anybody says. So what yeah, he certainly is on, on the Eagles, you know, just real quick. We'll, we'll do five minutes, you know, uh, quick rounds here. And, and then that's how we'll finish. You know, I mean, the Eagles, they, 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 they're, they're heartbreaker, man. They, 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 uh, they delivered us that Super Bowl, um, but it's been a disappointment ever since. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. The jury's still out on the new coach, uh, what our quarterback situation is going to be. 
Um, you know, I'm, uh, I kind of focused uh, where I'm at in the moment. I'm a big Sixers fan too. So I've been, I've been enjoying watching the Sixers, although we just lost three in a row there. Um, I'm a Philadelphia sports fan all around. They, they, you know, I usually around this time of year, like I'm kind of down on the Eagles. Oh, you know, another bad season. But by the time, uh, you know, camp rolls around, I'll be, I'll be in a hundred percent and you'll be hearing me uh, you know, chanting my Eagles chant bleeding green and everything. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm still I'm going to say the jury's still out right now. I'm still kind of uh, piecing it together to see what we're going to be in uh, 2022. Yeah, 2021. I, was, I, was shocked. I was shocked that they left Peterson go. I really was. Um, do, do you think he did it to himself? Uh, oh, I, I mean? think I think it was a uh, I think it was a, a mutual thing. I think he went back to him, said, listen, uh, you know, you, you, you're tying my hands here. Uh, you know, you put me in this tough spot with the quarterback situation. Um, you drafted a quarterback. Now I got my star quarterback looking over his shoulder. Um, you know, I, I just think that he wanted to be more involved in the draft and more. If you remember last year, he said his whole coaching staff was coming back and then the front office fired his whole coaching staff. Yeah. So I think this year he said, you know, I'm going to call the shots or I'm out of here. And they said, there's the door. So yeah. I, I think it was, I, I think it was more mutual, um, or more even in Peterson's hands than we'll ever know. Um, but you know, you know, you never know what really goes on, but I really believe that Peterson, he could have stayed if he wanted to, but he would have had to do it on their terms and he wasn't going to do it. Yeah. No, I mean, and and you kind of feel bad for the guy in in a way. I mean, and and I say that people don't feel bad for him too, that he's got millions of dollars in his bank account and does not have to work, um, the rest of his life. But in a way for career wise, he won in the first ever Super Bowl. You, you, you know, you got to yep. get the guy, and I think that you should have have some leeway. Um, also, another similarity, uh, you know, I don't you you and I, I think both know. I'm a big UFC fan. Um, one of the reasons uh, I used to be in it back in the day, I was a big George St. Pierre fan. When COVID hit and sports were gone, uh, Dana White said he'd be first, and he came back, and it was something that was on TV that didn't have to do with politics or COVID. <laughs> And it was a way to escape. And, and I'm an athlete. And uh, I love – I'm really invested in the UFC. Uh, my boy McGregor lost there last month. But it uh, looks like they're going to do the, the trio uh, the, the third time here this summer, uh, early fall. Uh, it's not official yet, but I know that that's both the fight that they won. Uh, I don't think the people know. You're, you're a UFC fan. Am, am I right? I am. I am. Uh, you know, yeah, I love McGregor. I mean, I think he brings uh, a great energy to it. Um, I, you know, I, I love, I love the trash talk. I love how, even when he doesn't back it up, he still, you know, he just kind of looks like, yeah, it took a good knock. I think is one of the things he said there. Yeah. Um, I think Dana White is just, a, just a phenomenal, uh, businessman, um, mo- motivated guy works hard. He's, he, he, what he's done with that business is incredible. Um, you know, that idea of fight Island, I think that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I love USC and, um, I'm, I, I think I've probably got the last five or six in a row. I've probably, got, yeah. you know, I, I get them all. I'm, I'm a sucker for that stuff. You know, you put something like that on TV, you're getting my 49 bucks pretty easily. Yeah. No, no, no. Same, same <clears> here. <throat> you know, you know, uh, I, I've even gotten my wife into it. She's a McGregor fan. Um, I love the story. You know, uh, he came from Ireland. He had nothing. He was on social welfare. You know, if you look back at how he was eight and a half years ago, um, he was one of the poorest people that you could have met. And now he's, you know, a multimillionaire because of hard work and he believed in himself. Yep. You know, so 
No, but uh, other than that, man, I, I just want to say, you know, thanks for, for coming on here today. I know we both have uh, busy schedules, both working full-time jobs. I'm off this week, as I said earlier, but uh, you don't know how much it meant to me. And um, hopefully if this thing hits, which I well, I think it was, I think we had some good content today. We can help each other back and forth and, and uh, you know, maybe someday we'll be the Joe Rogans of the universe um, uh, on podcasting. But I, I look at what he did with his show and, and I try to model it. And uh, of course, I don't have the backing like he does from Spotify and all that. But uh, I just want to put out a good show. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm going to have legendary coaches on. I'm going to try to get Dave Bailey on the show. He was a basketball coach at Tussie Mountain for 30-some years, won 700 games, got many stories. Uh, he was a Bobby Knight kind of coach. Uh, so yep, I'm, I'm I know all about him. People on. Yeah. I'm going to try to have people on at, at first to get it started um, from our area, from, from at least in the regional counties. So uh, really appreciate you being on today. And uh, what is the name of your podcast? So people, uh, you know, put it in the comments so people can yeah. go and watch it. Definitely want to give you some love today. Yeah, thanks. It's the Never Quit Podcast. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll actually, wherever you, wherever I see you post this, I'll put a link in the uh, comment section uh, for it. And I'll be happy to share your podcast and help you grow that. I mean, the, the thing about these podcasts is I think, you know, there, there, there's, so much, there's so much out there and people, nobody only listens to one show. So competition I think you, 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 is, is not an issue. You want to share these things, you know, let people know, hey, here's a similar show to mine. If you like this, you might like that, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm always happy to share content and uh, uh, other people's ideas. I wish you the best of luck, man. I admire you for what you're doing. I know, you know, I know what you're, what's going through your mind. You're hoping you get listeners. Um, it, it, and I, I'll tell you, it feels good. Even when you get five, six listeners, man, it feels good. I remember, uh, you know, when I started my podcast, getting that, that good feeling that people are actually listening, people actually care. So, man, I wish you the best of luck. I, I'm, I can't tell you how honored I am that you asked me to be on here as your first guest. And, uh, yeah, I hope, uh, you know, I, I hope I added something to your show, but you're, 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 you're doing great. I think it's going to be a great show and I look forward to listening to uh, future, future podcasts from you, Aiden. All right, well, hey, thanks, Bill Higgins, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I'm going to do some editing here, playing around, and uh, load it up. But uh, thank you once again. Yep. You have a great day, man. Call me if you need anything. Thank you. All right. Yep.